You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 17, where it's a great day to visit the attractions at Coney Island, except when the rides and attractions are controlled by Bullseye. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. This week I will be pulling out another Daredevil comic in the run of Frank Miller as Penciler with Klaus Jansen on inks, picking up where we left off. But I wanted to take a moment to talk a bit about Roger McKenzie. See, I didn't know much about him, hadn't seen much of him. McKenzie started out writing horror comics like Vampirella, Eerie, and then came to Marvel with the Battlestar Galactica adaptation. He then moved on to Ghost Rider, which was oddly after Karen Page had exited that title. But with issue 151, McKenzie was the regular writer on Daredevil. He was also writing Captain America at the time the issues that we're covering came out, as well as stories in Eerie and, of course, Battlestar Galactica. It's odd, after he leaves Daredevil, essentially after some work at smaller press comics like Kamiko and Deluxe Comics, the trail just goes cold except for some reprints of his older work like these Daredevil issues. The tale that is told is that Miller, still the hotshot artist, wrestled more and more control from McKenzie, and since Miller's input got positive reactions, editorial kept giving him more and more control. But I gotta say, McKenzie's actually underrated. His background with darker, horror-type stories suits Daredevil, and the comics we've been looking at are really good, plot-wise. A little bit lopsided, but still good. Do I think McKenzie could have turned the struggling book around and made it a bestseller returning to monthly status with a standard artist? No. But comic readers can be fickle. I mean, when plunking down our money, we want spectacle for our eyes. We want a show. McKenzie had great ideas, but without the visual flair that Miller brought along with the word of mouth, the book would have just been a well-written spinner rack warmer. But again, that's no fault of Roger McKenzie's, just the nature of the beast. Speaking of the comic itself, let's recap a bit to kind of what we're jumping into. Bullseye has kidnapped the Black Widow and has been enticing Daredevil to face him. Last issue, Daredevil sent a message by way of Turk that he is looking for Bullseye and Turk went running. And that is precisely where we will be picking up this week with Daredevil number 161 to Dare the Devil. But first, a promo for a different podcast and then we will be right back to jump right in. To keep the increasingly threatening Third Reich from achieving a supernatural doomsday weapon, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt secretly turns to soldier of fortune, adventurer, and World War I hero, Ace Kilroy. Ace Kilroy is a serialized webcomic that launched on Halloween night 2011. The co-creation of writer Rob Kelly and artist Dan O'Connor. It was nominated for a 2012 Eagle Award for Favorite Webcomic. And Kelly won a 2012 Philadelphia Geek Award for Comic Book Writer of the Year. Ace Kilroy features adventure, horror, mystery, political intrigue, and romance. Join the fight against evil. Visit acekilroy.com.
and we have returned to resume our reading excursion. Before we get into the issue itself, I'm going to warn you that the entire book takes place at one location, and it's a real-life landmark, so I put some geography nerdiness into this episode. Most of the time, we may see New York landmarks depicted in terms of a skyline, maybe Times Square, but the city lends itself to kind of a backlot mentality. What I mean by that is, since the city is so large, so immersed in its scope, artists will use a generic street or backdrop or building, and that creates something that fits the mood of the city, but isn't a real location, per se. And that works. But this week we have an issue with a very clear location and very iconic, very photographed, very documented location. As we go through the issue, a nice chunk of my notes will talk about this place, and I know that can throw some people off. But I did discover something along the way that should have any Daredevil fan excited. And I had a blast researching this issue. It's definitely a solid story, and we get a nice tour to boot. That's getting a lot for your money. Of course, the show is free, so you automatically win in terms of finance, but how many comic book podcasts take you to an amusement park? So let's pull out Daredevil 161, the November 1979 issue, and take a look at the cover here. Now, the cover is angled so that we are looking down a steep drop of a roller coaster. We see Daredevil getting kicked in the face by Bullseye as the assassin rides on the head car of the coaster itself. Toward the middle of the drop, Black Widow is tied to the tracks, watching helplessly as her savior is stymied. Now, the cover really is quite colon-esque. It uses a downward angle to spin a dizzying scene. Again, a minimal background beyond the complex form of the roller coaster makes this stand out. It's very adrenaline-fueled, especially in terms of Daredevil and Bullseye, who end up in the center of the action and kind of right side up. So we're looking at it from somewhat their perspective. And while the scene on the cover differs a bit from the action in the issue, it definitely serves as an enticing bit for the story itself, which is To Dare the Devil. Written by Roger McKenzie, penciled by Frank Miller, inked by Klaus Janssen, lettered by Diana Albers, and colored by Glennis Ween. After his run-in with Daredevil last issue, Turk rushes back to meet Eric Slaughter at Coney Island, which Slaughter correctly deduces is exactly what Daredevil intended. Sure enough, Daredevil arrives right behind Turk, having used the stooge to track down Slaughter. Slaughter's hired muscle rushes Daredevil, who delivers a swift and efficient ass-whooping to them, and Daredevil is about to corner Slaughter and demand to know where Bullseye is when the amusement park's Astro Tower answers his question by rising into the air. Alright, let's stop there for a moment. Ah, Turk. He may be lovable, but nobody, and I mean nobody, will ever accuse him of being smart. Except for himself, but that doesn't really count, does it? Of course, Daredevil followed him, and it all went according to plan. Thanks, Turk. Now, I mentioned this is Coney Island, but the location that Slaughter is hanging out in is specifically the amusement park known as Astroland. To be even more specific, thanks to the powers of Google Earth, Slaughter and his men are hanging out around 3027 West 12th Street in Brooklyn. I judge this by the fact that just before reaching Slaughter, Turk runs past a distinctive sculpture of a devil holding a trident which in itself is a bit of a landmark. The first panel is actually a view of 10th Street and Surf Avenue as seen from the elevated train tracks or slightly above that. Now matching this up as closely as I could to the Google Earth version, angling everything, I found something astounding. Now it's a stretch to think that Miller took his reference as he rode by on the train, but, and again this is a level of nerdiness you don't get on any other show, from the angle he would have been standing in or on top of the Luna Park co-op housing which is a tall apartment building which was built on top of the first amusement park known as Luna Park. Luna Park was a part of a chain of parks, actually, and operated on Coney Island from about 1903 to 1944, at least according to Wikipedia. Take that as you will. 
But to bring it back on point, Miller was either on the high-rise, in it, or looking at a photo from the apartments. And this is some nice research on Miller's part. Now, I mean, it's just doing a search on Google and you have reference. So Miller either had a photo from that vantage point, took a photo, or sketched at the location itself, which is not out of the question. I heard Miller state in an interview that, at one time, when he first came to New York, he could literally sit on the edge of the Empire State Building and sketch the skyline, which scares the willies out of me. However, the question popped into my head. How far did Daredevil follow Turk? How far did Turk travel? And that particular bit of research led me to one of the coolest Daredevil fan moments of my life. So prepare for the awesome. This is what I promised you. See, it occurred to me, in a common sense fashion, that to calculate the distance Daredevil followed Turk, I would have to trace the trail from the destination to the origin point. See, what origin point? Well, that was Josie's bar. Where's Josie's bar? Here's where we run into a trouble. See, I figured as far as fictional locales go, this one could be pretty plausible. McKenzie or Miller probably based it on a potentially real watering hole in New York. So I began going through the issues to see what we have to go by to locate this place. The text in Daredevil 160 tells us that it is just off South Street near the Brooklyn Bridge. So that narrows down an area of the city. And taking to the street view, it looks like I have found it. Again, on Facebook, I promised you excellence and now you have it. South Street runs along the East River, along the southwest edge of Manhattan where it intersects beneath the Brooklyn Bridge. So I definitely had an area to work with and I eliminated the area between the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge. So that allowed me to zero in on a few culprits. One was a location on Beaker Street. Now it had the awning that you see in the issues, but it didn't quite look right. I couldn't find where the big windows would have been, if indeed there was a photo reference. Plus, the text says it's right by the Brooklyn Bridge, in the shadows of the Brooklyn Bridge, which led me to a spot on Front Street, which is the current location of a restaurant called Cowgirl Seahorse. It's one short block from South Street and literally across the street from Brooklyn Bridge. You could throw a rock at the Brooklyn Bridge, and that's not just a saying. You could actually do so. Now, it's been renovated, and the area's been cleaned up, but thanks to Google Maps having the ability to show the actual inside of places, you can actually go around and tour places, I immediately knew this was it. There's a very old wooden bar. The floor space looks right. It would have been expanded from what would have been there because it's all one property, and I believe they took different sections. But I can see exactly where the pool table would be. And I knew it. I looked at it. I knew this was the place. So for me, Josie's Bar and Grill has been found. And we will use that in any geographical nerdiness this show may encounter. Again, this is a fictional location. I'm not saying this was Josie's Bar. I'm not even making a claim that this was the photo reference for Josie's Bar. I'm saying this is the most logical location for Josie's Bar to have existed based on the descriptions in the book and the way the bar is depicted. But you know... There are a lot of podcasts, and there are a lot of comic podcasts. Not many pour over maps for about two and a half hours to pinpoint where the real-world analogs of fictional places are. Again, not saying this is the actual place, because it isn't real, but I am saying that this is the most logical geographical spot where Josie's would be, and if you want to take a look, you can simply look up 259 Front Street, New York, New York, 10038. Take a look at it from the street view, and you can also use that to look around inside. Now, the neon sign may not be there, but just looking at it, it's a perfect location. So now for me to take a trip and have a drink at Josie's Bar, and maybe get thrown out a window. But that won't be happening for me today, because I'm in the middle of the country and not the East Coast. Now, for those that are wondering, there is an actual Josie's Bar. It's in the East Village. It used to be known as Joe's Bar. 
That's until the original owner died and the name was changed. It's a completely different atmosphere. But back to the point that started this, how far did Daredevil follow Turk? So back to those calculations using that starting point and our endpoint at Coney Island, Turk had to get on a train and it does mention in the text he got off of one. So tracing that back, it would be about, about an hour or so commute on foot and by train. And see, suddenly after finding that location of Josie's bar, the experiment of distance really kind of paled in comparison. Anyway, back to the location itself of Coney Island. The giant Wonder Wheel Ferris wheel is shown, probably fondly remembered from family vacations or the opening of The Warriors, which was a very excellent film in its own right. Now, probably for many people, The Warriors would be what they remember, and that movie came out in 1979, February of 1979 to be exact. Now, this issue actually, even though it bears a different cover date, came out in August of 1979. Coincidence? I think not. Now, I mentioned the Astro Tower, which was another attraction and the one that got Daredevil's attention. This was an observation deck that not only elevated, it spun, so it gives the rider a full view of the amusement park. And I know what you're thinking, because I was thinking it too. Has Daredevil walked into a trap? Let's get back to the story to find out. Impulsively, Daredevil begins to climb the tower, only to realize that it is a trap. When the car begins to come down and assassins shoot at the man without fear, he clues in. Daredevil pulls off a long-distance Hail Mary, Billy Club swinging off the giant Ferris wheel, jump, as Bullseye taunts him over the loudspeaker. And then Daredevil spots a familiar form, the Black Widow, tied to the tracks of the Cyclone roller coaster and begins making his way to it as the coaster's cars make their way for Natasha. In those cars, Daredevil comes into conflict with the armed goons riding the coaster just as the coaster reaches the Widow and Daredevil swings himself to safety but the car hits the figure which falls limply, lifelessly to the ground below. Holy crap, what a moment. The Black Widow not saved by Daredevil. Now let's be kind of honest. It's kind of moot. We all know Natasha's still alive and well today, so there goes the suspense for us. Now Daredevil climbing the Astro Tower was not his brightest move, especially since he is on the post that the actual deck travels up and down, and the ride is already in motion. Let's assess the situation. Slaughter and his merry band of hired guns are present. Bullseye is clearly laying a trap by kidnapping Natasha and bringing her here. Daredevil even thinks to himself that Bullseye is trying to get him out in the open. Why would he put himself in that location? It's not like he can see from there, and I'm not making a joke with that. I'm actually trying to make an actual observation. Daredevil's radar sense is more acute and useful and a closer range. So how did he miss the heartbeats of the gunmen perched on the roller coaster when the distance really isn't that great? I mean, Daredevil is losing a bit of his discipline. And why? He's worried about Natasha. He's not prepared to face Bullseye yet. I'm sure by following Turk, Daredevil, you know, expected to question Slaughter and then go find Bullseye with the aid of surprise. This was not a wise move and should go against Daredevil's own instincts. Look, I'm not a crime fighter, but I know that that ride and the height makes one an easier target. I mentioned that the gunmen are on the Cyclone roller coaster, starting out position on the tracks, and then they move to the cars themselves. The Cyclone roller coaster was built in 1927. It's considered a landmark and still runs today under new management. And if you have peeked at the map, this area may be familiar even if you have never visited New York, because the whole area was strikingly reproduced in Grand Theft Auto 4. And I remember running a motorcycle down the boardwalk and trying to take the car up the coaster, which is nicknamed the Screamer in the game. And somebody in Hollywood had to have read this issue, because the 80s Sam Elliott movie Shakedown, it could have been better, features a fight on the cyclone kind of like the one we see Daredevil partake in. As for the leap that Daredevil makes, it's a doozy. 
just judging by the distance in the real world between the Astro Tower and the Wonder Wheel. He would have to throw himself a, you know, a healthy number of yards away from the post, and that's even before unleashing the Billy Club to grab the Wonder Wheel's car. And then there's the fences, other obstacles in the path of his swing beyond that. As the text says, it's an impossible jump, and I don't know if the full effect of Daredevil's Hail Mary would be felt without looking at the park's layout, because he essentially dropped maybe a story, and then away from the tower, fired his line, and then had to keep his arm from popping out of the socket when the inevitable jerk happened and brought him up. And that's all while avoiding those smaller rides, and then landing right on the giant sign for the Wonder Wheel. Now, I'm sure for New York natives and those who have vacationed at Coney Island, this may be apparent, but from a, for a guy from Missouri who has yet to set foot in New York, this is mind-blowing. Also, let's kind of celebrate this. We kind of went through some of the things Bullseye's used to kill people before. Bullseye has weaponized an amusement park. And probably one of the first uh, reactions to that would be the Joker using an amusement park, or a carnival, I should say, in Killing Joke nearly a decade later. But it wasn't to this extent. Roller coasters become missiles, movable observation decks become like a guillotine, assassins ride on the rails of the cyclone, and it appears Black Widow has perished. You know, I may not be as keen to go to Islands of Adventure now. I'm a little leery. But, even if we didn't know that Black Widow isn't dead, spoilers I guess, the readers of 1979 didn't. So the next question is, how does Daredevil get out of this death trap? How does Black Widow survive? Let's get back to the story and find out. Bullseye knows that Daredevil has somehow sniffed out his ruse. The figure of the Black Widow was actually a dummy. I mean an actual dummy, not insulting Black Widow. The real Black Widow is actually tied up to a post in the arcade where Bullseye is stationed. And his cronies are throwing knives at her, narrowly missing her just to mess with her head. Meanwhile, at Fogwell's gym, Ben Urick talks to the longtime janitor of the place, K.O., about battling Jack Murdoch. And the topic of conversation turns to Matt and how the neighborhood kids picked on him and Ben pieces together that the nickname they gave him was Daredevil. Back on Coney Island, Daredevil corners Turk and takes him to a high place on a devil statue that I mentioned earlier, telling Turk he wants Bullseye. Now. Turk obliges. Meanwhile, the Black Widow takes advantage of all the knife throwing and uses the blades to cut her ropes. She makes short work of Bullseye's flunkies, but the man himself almost has her until Daredevil shows up. Hornhead and Bullseye fight with Bullseye using baseballs as weapons and then Daredevil's own billy club to fight the man without fear. And this ends with Bullseye taking aim on Daredevil with a pistol. And Daredevil, sensing anxiety in Bullseye, dares the villain to shoot to try to bluff him. Bullseye completely loses his nerve as Slaughter and his men surround the combatants. Bullseye offers Slaughter double the amount to kill Daredevil. But Slaughter declines because Daredevil has earned his respect, and Bullseye can't be trusted to fulfill his financial promises. Bullseye has a complete emotional collapse, and Daredevil takes him into custody. As Black Widow and Daredevil leave, Slaughter promises that he and Daredevil will meet again, and things will be different. The issue closes with Daredevil, Bullseye slung over his shoulder, calling back, Count on it. Okay, riddle me this. You have a highly trained, resilient, international spy and assassin in your possession. What do you do? Throw knives and taunt her? Oh, great plan. I'm sure all the kids are doing it. It's a gasser. If you taunt a lion at the zoo, you have no right to be surprised when the lion eats your face. And I'm sorry, thugs. The widow was already plotting the order that you will be beaten in and which bones to break first. Clearly, these were not the best henchmen that money can buy. As far as Bullseye... Miller seems to be adding some odd circular earpieces to Bullseye's mask. They come and they go. They're colored black, then they're white. I don't like them. And I see why they got lost. It changes the entire shape of his head. Now, good on Miller for trying something, trying to innovate the costume, but I think the attempt to color them 
really ruined the look. And under the topic of fictional places that I have not ascribed an address to, yet, comes a visit to Fogwell's gym, looking strikingly like Everett Durrett in Daredevil number one. Yurik is putting the final pieces into place. He knows Matt's Daredevil. That much is certain. He just needs the proof. He needs to put the paces together to understand why and to prove so. Because you can't run a news story about an attorney, of all things an attorney, being a superhero without tangible proof. Not only is it irresponsible journalism, it could be libel. And McKenzie is pointing out something very obvious in terms of a giveaway to Daredevil's secret identity. The nickname. It always bugged me. Up until Mark Wade directly addressed it, I always wondered how did none of the bullies put together that the bookish Matt became Daredevil. His first sightings were based around his father's killer. He uses the nickname they gave him. He's even fighting crime in the same neighborhood. So I'm glad that this was kind of exposed, that that's kind of being exploited here. And on the topic of devils, I noted earlier that Turk ran past a devil statue. I pointed that out. And Daredevil hangs him on the pitchfork of the same statue. The statue is actually part of a ride called the Hellhole. It was a horror-themed ride, but it was basically a centrifuge that spun so fast that the rider was stuck to the wall with centripetal force, the floor would drop out, and the center was a spigot that shot flame into the air. The devil statue was an actual thing that stood outside the ride. So not only is it appropriate to our comic, it's actually appropriate to the location. I'm not sure who the credit goes to on that, but it is excellent symmetry. But let's get down to the Daredevil and Bullseye fight we have been waiting for. It's nasty. Daredevil starts by pulling Bullseye with the billy club, and then gets some solid blows in, and then Bullseye beans Daredevil with some baseballs, and then snatches Daredevil's billy club as it's thrown. Snatches it right out of the air, and then nails Daredevil in the face with it, and then hits him over the head. To say it's heated is an understatement. They are trying to kill each other. If not for Bullseye conveniently losing his mind at the last moment and Slaughter's change of heart, Daredevil would be screwed. I mean, it's a convenient and anticlimactic ending. A little bit. Because we go from heated to calm in about half a page, and I really, in the, in the structure of the story itself, we don't have a clear reason on why Bullseye suddenly loses his testicular courage. Up to this point, everything has gone pretty much according to plan. He has Daredevil dead to rights, and suddenly he starts whimpering. If this wasn't a story beat that got addressed later, I would call complete foul. I mean, it comes off contrived in the single read, as I said. How could Bullseye, killer extraordinaire, suddenly balk and have his mind drop out? Now, since it's Miller, not McKenzie, who picks up the threads, I'm inclined to believe that Bullseye was meant to be put back on the shelf for an extended period, with no future plans in place to use him later. But that's, that's a tricky call to make. I mean, I'm just making a guess here. There's no evidence to back it up. Now, there is a bit of a curiosity in terms of this story. The first series of Impel Marvel Universe trading cards has a card devoted to Daredevil versus Bullseye. They have a whole section of famous battles. Now, the image on the front of the card, the main image, shows Daredevil and Bullseye squaring off on a roller coaster, which seems to reference this issue, albeit in an odd bit of interpretation. Now, the back of the card actually references a completely different fight, and that one did not involve roller coasters or theme parks. So, just an odd bit of curiosity. Now, the issue as a whole, you know, it was pretty octane on one level, and then came to a sagging ending. But having looked at the care that Miller put into depicting the Coney Island amusement park and the level of detail in it, this comic becomes something of a unique experience. As I let off with, this could have been a generic carnival. We could have used that generic backlot mentality. Instead, we got a visceral fight, some nice usage of rides as weapons, and a whole amusement park as a death trap. 
and it's all based in the real world, which is one of the big keys to Marvel and Daredevil as a whole. It's not a generic alley, it's not a nondescript rooftop, but a highly trafficked, highly documented New York landmark. So for that, I tip my hat to this issue because it's not only a fairly solid, well-rounded read with the exception of the last few pages, it also has some of the most fun research I've ever done for a comic book podcast. Now, if you don't have access to the issue immediately and you want to see the art and compare it to pictures or Google Earth, it is reprinted in Daredevil Marked for Death trade paperback, Marvel Superheroes Magazine number 3, Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 1 trade paperback, The Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus, and Marvel Digital and Digital Unlimited. So that is Daredevil number 161. Next up on our agenda, emails. Because you wrote it, Dave reads it. It's email time. First up this week is an email from W. Blaine Dowler with the subject line Human Torch Myth. Blaine writes, Hi Dave, I'm listening to the latest podcast now and I wanted to fill you in on a common myth. You mentioned that the Human Torch was left out of the first Fantastic Four cartoon for fear of kids lighting themselves on fire. This is a popular myth, but a myth nonetheless. The real reason Herbie replaced Johnny Storm is that the rights to the Human Torch were still tied up with the company that did the Marvel Superhero series, Gantry Lawrence Animation, because they bought the rights to every character that shared a book at the time. That means they had the rights to the Human Torch via his Strange Tales run, along with Doctor Strange, the Watcher from his Tales of Suspense backups, and other characters that they had never used. Thus, when Hanna-Barbera put their Fantastic Four series together the following year, they didn't have the option to use Johnny. Yes, the Thing was a co-star near the end, but he was billed as a co-star and not the lead, so that didn't apply. There was no concern about kids setting themselves on fire at this time. I wonder if that myth was out there before or after Fantastic Four number 285, but that's another podcast. Anyway, I just thought you'd like to know. Keep up the great work, Blaine. And I knew the, the legend of the torture's omission was untrue, however, I couldn't remember what the real story was. And admittedly, I did that at the expense of the joke. I knew the rights with the Gantry Lawrence cartoons were sticky, which led to things like the X-Men replacing the Fantastic Four when an adaptation of an FF story landed in a Submariner cartoon. That's right, the Baxter building was being stolen with no FF in it, just a bunch of heroes trying to stop Doctor Doom. And Gantry Lawrence, for those that don't remember, were the ones that made the Marvel superheroes. They had the Hulk, Captain America. What they did was they took the art from the book and, I use quotation marks here, animated it. You might see an arm move or something like that. And it's great how animation has evolved so much that we can animate the actual comics to... Well, wait a minute. So, essentially, what the old Marvel hero show did in the 60s is what Marvel is doing now with their motion comics. Well, I guess the evolution wasn't as progressed as originally thought. But I know legal rights are a pain, which makes sense. However, the legend of the Human Torture's omission is so widespread it's become a bit of accepted lore. And again, I mean, I was making a simple joke. To paraphrase the man that shot Liberty Valance... When the legend becomes the truth, print the legend. But thanks for that tidbit, Blaine. And remember, you can hear Blaine over at Bureau42.com. That's Bureau42.com. Next up, we have Mr. Luke Giaconetti with an email entitled, He is the Man Without Fear. He writes, Dave, sorry I have not written in a while, but between work, extracurricular activities, and winter storm packs playing havoc with the entire state of South Carolina... Things have been hectic, but I have gotten caught up through the end of the Man Without Fear miniseries by listening to the show in my car and wanted to send some thoughts. You had said early on that Man Without Fear began its life as a teleplay for a TV movie and then was adapted into an oversized deluxe format book before again changing into the five-part miniseries. This got me thinking. 
You commented that when you did your mad fold-in reading order, the story overall had better pacing and flow, and seemed to keep the tighter hold on the through-line of Matt's journey. Do you think that the stuff in the middle with Elector was added to the story as part of the expansion from the deluxe format book to the miniseries? Perhaps when Miller and Ramita were asked to add more pages, the logical conclusion was add more Elektra to the mix. Given that even in the 90s, Elektra had taken on a certain mythical status among Marvel readers, not unlike Bucky Barnes and Gwen Stacy. On a semi-related note, you mentioned that the Marvel USPS stamps included Elektra. This stood out to me back in the day as well, and I have to chalk it up to political correctness. If you name the top recognizable characters in the Marvel Universe, for good or for ill, it takes a while before you get to a female. Especially back in 2007, before Black Widow became a household name. And before Marvel's current all-out push of Carol Danvers as Captain Marvel. So we have Elektra, who had been in two movies at this point, and Spider-Woman, chosen as an analog to Spider-Man, maybe? To add some heroines to the mix. Personally, I would have chosen She-Hulk over Spider-Woman, but that's just me. At least Shellhead made the cut. Overall, I enjoyed your coverage of this series and will be looking to check it out in the future. From a thematic standpoint, it makes me think of Batman Year One, where the elements of the hero are there, but they're not solidified yet. We see the alignment of the roots before the tree begins to bear fruit, so to speak. Including the little bit of history for Wilson Fisk is welcome as well. The Kingpin is a Marvel villain who espouses the shared universe concept of the MU very well. We as readers have no issues accepting that he can tangle with Daredevil or Spider-Man or the Punisher or Moon Knight, the Heroes for Hire, the Daughters of the Dragon, or any number of Marvel heroes because of the true shared universe. Looking forward to hearing about Miller's run proper in the coming episodes. I'm learning more about Old Hornhead than I ever thought I would. Keep up the great work on the show, Luke. Thank you, Luke. I missed your emails, but I know that PAX has darn near crippled South Carolina, so here's to warmer, less volatile weather coming. And good on you for referencing the show's theme song. My understanding is that Miller himself found the muse and added the material to Man Without Fear. And of course, since he was pretty much able to write his own check, so to speak, editors were, I mean, pretty much afraid to touch his work. He pretty much just threw in what he wanted. So Ramita and the editors kind of went with the flow. And with the amount of material, that was when the decision was made to split Man Without Fear into the five issues. At least from the way editor Ralph Macchio describes it. But when top talent is handing in gold and there's an opportunity to make a little bit more money on that to boot, run with it. In terms of the postal stamp, I can see what you're saying about diversifying the characters and why Black Widow was omitted, and it would be a bit before Natasha got her due, so she was kind of, I wouldn't say persona non grata, but she was not mainstream. However, The Invisible Woman was in two films at that point because the FF sequel was either about to hit or had just hit that year. I would have leaned that way since she's part of Marvel's first family, and I know that the thing was there to represent the team, and that may have caused some issues matching up with the cover analog, but let's be honest, Fantastic Four is not short on awesome Kirby covers. And I'm behind you 100% on the fact that She-Hulk would have made a perfect fit. It was just an odd choice to use Elektra with hardly any reference to Daredevil. Not only the character that spawned her, but a Marvel mainstay at that. But I don't get to make decisions at Marvel, or I would have my Peter Porker the Spectacular Spider-Ham omnibus in my hands as we speak. As far as Man Without Fear comparing to Batman Year One, I think your description is pretty much perfect. Luckily, Miller didn't get pegged down as the reboot guy like John Byrne did. I mean, both reinvented to different extents mainstay DC heroes. Byrne with Superman, Miller with Batman. But after that, Byrne got called in whenever a character needed to be rebooted and reimagined to differing degrees of success. I don't see that as the scenario here, because here Miller happened to have a story to tell, he had an artist he wanted to work with, 
and it wasn't expected to remove or replace the original telling of events, but to add to them, with some changes to make it a little bit more contemporary. It wasn't a hard and fast realignment, but a few tweaks and a bit of oil to the joints of the original. That's why Man Without Fear works, because it can be taken or left without tying every piece of the lore to a new fixed beginning. And if you think I'm dancing around Burns' work on Spider-Man Chapter 1, you are right. I don't like Chapter 1, but I don't blame Byrne for the failures of the Spider-Man relaunch. Mainly because he was working from editorial mandate, and while Miller was working from a simple story idea. I think that's why putting Kingpin in the origin tale works as well, because it, uh, not only to touch on one of your other points, but to continue that thought process, Fisk was folded in logically, as he and Matt never came face to face. This is only one small dent in Kingpin's overall operation. It's also a gap in the original Spider-Man narrative, and as you said, it works because of the shared universe. Looking at something like having Lex Luthor tied to Batman's origin wouldn't have worked as well, or the Cheetah in Superman's origin. Sure, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman share a universe too, but Marvel's was built that way by design. So Kingpin could mosey into other hero stories, and by the character's concept, it would make sense. He's the head of crime in New York, and the bulk of Marvel's heroes are in New York, so sure, Kingpin can show up. It would be a shame if he didn't. But all very good points, Luke. I like hearing from you, so keep that up. And remember that Luke can be found on the Two True Freaks Network with his show Earth Destruction Directive, covering Japanese giant monsters. There is a term for that, but I suck at pronouncing it. I'm going to try this Daikaiju. I think that's as close as I can get. If it's wrong, I do apologize. And lastly, for the emails this week, I have an email from Jason Bennett with a subject line entitled simply Theme Song. Jason writes, Hi Dave, I love the podcast. I'm catching up on the episode so far as I just discovered it yesterday. Luckily, I have an hour commute every day to listen. At any rate, where did you get the theme song? I love it. Is it available somewhere for download? Thanks, Jason. Well, I'm glad to hear that you did discover the show and that you are catching up. As for the theme song, it's by a band called Icarus. It's called Man Without Fear. And Icarus did a whole album of Marvel-themed prog rock. This included Fantastic Four, Conan, so on and so forth. It is not available for download. It can be bought on CD on Amazon. Or, if you search out Marvel World of Icarus on YouTube, you can find the songs there. That's where I found it. And props to Michael Bailey for featuring Marvel's World of Icarus on his podcast, Views from the Long Box. Because that's where I discovered it, listened to these, and as soon as I, I heard this song, I knew that was the one for this show. So thank you, and I appreciate you catching up. And finally, I do have one iTunes review. Came in on February 9th, so I just missed it last episode. It is another five-star review from user Raleigh1, and the review simply says, thanks. Well, you are quite welcome, and thank you for taking the time to review it, and thank you for listening to the show, and I will extend that to all of you. I do appreciate your listenership, and I hope we are having a great time with this. And remember, if you want to drop the show a line, the address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com or leave a comment on the show posting at daredevilpodcast.com where there is a handy-dandy, easy-to-use contact form as well. And as we come to the end of another episode and this storyline, we look to next week, when the Hulk stops by. Enough said on that front. I will talk to you in seven days. Until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, they call a man without fear. Far away whenever danger's near. There's never fight for what is right. There's never fight for you tonight.
Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Tonight, they're devil.